Podcast 43, Review of Gaia's Garden, from the forward up through Chapter 3. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. All right, so this is another podcast Rooney. Um, I'm Paul Wheaton. I'm here with uh, Jocelyn Campbell. Um, we are going to do something totally different. Well, different different for me, um, and I know it's new to Jocelyn, but maybe other podcasters do this all the time. I don't know. Well, I think book reviews might be normal, but we're doing this a bit different than a normal book review. We're pasting together little snippets after we read sections of the book. So now we're going to go through Gaia's Garden, and um, I've got the first edition, and you've got the second edition. And my edition has 11 chapters, and yours has 12. Right. The first edition uh, was published in 2000, and the second edition was published in 2009. And what we're going to do is we're going to um, do a chapter and then a bit of podcast, a chapter, a bit of podcast, a chapter, a bit of podcast. So rather than like read the whole thing and then make one podcast that's reviewing the book, we're going to effectively um, review it as we go. So, And, and then uh, another component is, is that the chapter is going to be very, very fresh in our minds as we review that chapter. We might even take notes. <laughs> well, here's what I've done is I've owned this book. I've owned my copy of Gaia's Garden um, since I think like 2002, 2003, and it's it's pretty tattered. But um, I normally never draw in a book. But um, I'm kind of thinking that for this, I've I've been doing it. I've been I've, I've gone through, and I uh, for the parts that we've read. So so today we're going to cover the foreword and the preface, and. Um, uh, I've gone through and I've, I've kind of uh, highlighted the things that I want to, you know, address or quote or, or whatever. Um, and, and I feel a little weird writing in a book. Um, and I know other people, like, they, they write in books all the damn time. Um, but I, I feel like now it's justified because, you know, thousands of people listen to these podcasts. Right, right. So I, I should do a good job. <laughs> well, well, you just highlighted one of the differences between the two editions. My edition did not have a forward. So what? What was your? What did your forward have to say? Well, the forward's by John Todd. I have no idea who this is, but the the actually the forward is is awesome. Uh, it's uh, this guy is like some kind of professor, I guess, and he starts off saying, "Go out and take a jar, and then um, put in some some pond scum, and then go find a puddle in the woods, and put in some junk from that, and go find like a pig wallow." Or a farm wallow, a little a little mud puddle at some f- funky farm, and put in some of that into a mason jar, and then seal the lid tight, and then turn the jar upside down and put it in the sun. And now my first thought is, dude, that's going to explode. <laughs> that's like not a good idea. So, so uh, uh, I must be wrong about this because he goes on to write about what then happens. And it's that everything works out just fine. In fact, 
you, a whole ecosystem will evolve inside this jar. And, and because it's got the sun, then it's creating oxygen. All those little plant bits that are in there will create oxygen. And, and, and he's, he talks about how he's had his jar for years and, and, he, and how there's still life in there. And it's like the, the way that you kill it is to eliminate the light. And then everything dies. And it's, it's, it's really kind of, it's really kind of cool. And I, I think it's especially fitting to be at the beginning of Toby's book. Um, I asked Toby to be part of what we're doing today, and, and he said, ah, I would like to, but I'm at a place where the Internet sucks and phone sucks, so there's no way for me to be part of it, So, um, which is unfortunate. But uh, he wants to hear it when we're all done, and maybe I can track him down and, and uh, have him, you know, I, he, I'm sure he'll do a podcast with me. He does stuff with me a lot. So um, he's my... Friend. <laughs> <laughs> you have those. That's a good thing. <laughs> um, the foreword sounds fitting to Toby, too, because Toby is a biologist, and he worked as an immuno- immunologist for a number of years. And so he, you know, he has a very scientific focus with permaculture, I think, um, compared to some of the other permaculture um experts and teachers that I've heard. He's he um Toby um I and I appreciate that about Toby. I appreciate the science he brings. So I've got one little from I mean the the forward's only a few pages long. Um and uh, I I did circle a little bit that I thought was um worth worth quoting. Uh through what Hemingway terms polyculture and what I shall call gardening in the image of a meadow, instead of the often backbreaking labor that goes into tilling, sowing, weeding, and chemically controlling a conventional vegetable garden, Toby Hemingway's meadow-inspired food garden works on totally different principles. It provides its own fertilization, has internal weed suppression and pest control mechanisms, and manages its internal moisture levels through dry times and wet, functioning as a self-organizing ecology. I thought that was cool. That is cool. That is very cool. See, and and you don't you don't get to have that, um, you know, <laughs> in your no. crappy second edition. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, but there is, in the second edition, the new chapter on urban permaculture. That's a big difference. So, okay, suddenly your your volume went way down. What happened? I didn't do anything. Um, we, we thought in the past that that was my crappy little headset, but then we wondered if it might be the Internet connection causing that. So um, I don't know. Okay. Well... <clears throat> Um, uh, we're going to have to get you another headset. <laughs> yeah, we said that last time. Okay. All right. So moving on, moving on to the preface. Um, uh, I've, I, I've, I've kind of marked up a few different things that, that I, I mean, the, the, the first, um, few lines I think, uh, are, are really spectacular. Um, 
This book began, and I don't know if, if my preface reads different than yours, but, but here's what I see in the first few lines of the preface. Uh, this book began when I visited a garden that felt, li- felt unlike any I had seen. Sometimes in a tropical forest or snorkeling in a coral reef, I have felt an aliveness, a sense of many interlocking pieces clicking together into a living and dynamic whole. These are places that naturally exude abundance. Sadly, this feeling was utterly lacking in any human-made landscape I had experienced. Well, he talks about that uh, about half a page in, in the preface to the second edition. So he, he talks about the changes first between the two editions in mine, and and he talks about how in 2000, the term permaculture was a little stranger than it is um, now, or it was in 2009 when this was published. So he talked about that a little bit. And the two big changes in the book that he made are that um, he added that chapter, and also he moved. So he talks a lot about his own rural property in Oregon in the first edition. But by the second edition, he was living in an, on a more urban lot in Portland. But... Um, I I enjoyed I, I did enjoy another description that Heidi had. I, I mean he says what he makes very clear is that permaculture is more than just gardening, but this is Jocelyn, I can't hear anything you're saying right now. It's like you just it's like you just walked twenty feet away from the microphone. Uh, nope, microphone is in the exact same position. Your volume was going up and down or changing in quality and tone as well. So I, I don't know what that's about. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so it, should we continue? Uh, yeah, let's just write it off as Skype weirdness and make the best of it. Okay. So he he makes it clear that this is primarily a book about gardening. Um, even though permaculture encompasses a lot more than that, though he says in the second edition he feels more comfortable diving into permaculture a little deeper. So I don't know, I don't know what that means. How you know how much of the content he really changed, but I liked how he said um, that he wanted to provide all of us. And now I'm reading from the preface to the second edition. Even those with no yard at all, with tools for using our landscapes to reduce our ecological footprint and become more self-reliant while enhancing habitat for increasingly threatened wildlife. Um, Okay. I just thought that was, you know... That was well said. He also goes into other reasons for wanting this book and explaining what type of book it is later in the preface. Um, And I don't know if he did that in the first preface. I mean, he talks about reducing uh, a lot of the chemical use in in, uh, residential properties and that it's not an introductory garden book. Right. Yeah, that was something that was in the first one. And and I, um, let's see, he says, I assume that most of my readers have done a little gardening. Gaia's Garden is not an introductory gardening book. Right. Um, And so that was one of the other things that I highlighted. And I I agree that um, that I... 
and I've I've always recommended Square Foot Gardening uh, for, as a book for people just getting started in gardening. I, I think Guy's Garden will make a lot more sense after somebody's read, you know, booked up uh, in another way, or or had a lot of uh, experience doing gardening. Um, uh, and by a lot, I mean like you know at least two seasons, like two two. Uh, Two summers of gardening. Um, I think, uh, and then for those who've done zero summers or one, I, I think square foot gardening is a great place to start. Um, I've got one more little section here that that I've marked off that I want to share, and and then um, and then let's 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 see if we can wrap up and move on to chapter one. Um, they are places where conscious design has been melded with a respect and understanding of nature's principles. The result is a living and riotously abundant landscape in which all the pieces work together to yield food, flowers, medicinal, and edible herbs, even craft supplies and income for the human inhabitants, while providing diverse habitat for helpful insects, birds, and other wildlife. Places where nature does most of the work, but where people are as welcome as the other inhabitants of Earth. Yeah, he kept... That's such a cool portion, he kept it in the second edition. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. All right. (laughs) Yeah. And I... I highlighted something else, two other things. He talks, he mentions his bibliography. I took a permaculture design course, a PDC with Toby, and he is encyclopedic in his knowledge of all the books out there that are available on this stuff because he's read them all. He can recall them from memory. And so, you know, I haven't even looked at the bibliography in here yet, but he he's just so amazing with with that kind of knowledge that that's an excellent resource in and of itself and and I'm excited to look through the bibliography at the end but I highlighted one last piece um, towards the end before he starts thanking all the people um, and he says in this book I've attempted to synthesize these permacultural ideas with ecologists growing understanding of what makes nature work and I, I think that's really um, Toby's gift I, yeah, and, and I think you know I think the key is is that with permaculture and, and the thing that he's emphasizing in the book and the thing that he makes so clear I mean this book is not a particularly big book I mean if you think of Mollison's book it's it's massive and um, and so it really cuts to the chase in Toby's book um, and and the thing is, is it's like let's take the nature model and rather than like totally crushing it and forcing seeds in a certain place and making you know making nature clearly aware nature you are my bitch that instead what you know the design of permaculture and what Toby emphasizes is is it's like let's take the nature model and nudge it and let's and if we just if we just nudge it a little bit here and there then we end up with something that is far more abundant far m- more awesome than uh nature by itself or when we make nature our bitch so this is this is something that's that's uh you know far more robust yep i'm i'm looking forward to um reading it together and talking about it with Burmese folks, this will be a great time. 
All right. Ready for the next chapter? Yep. All right. Okay, we're on to chapter one. Um, and uh, I thought that chapter one, uh, this is this is the one where uh, Toby goes into a lot of detail about um, native stuff. And, and I kind of thought that the, the chapter one covered a bit about, like, uh, comparing permaculture to um, an untouched native system hey, and Paul, comparing yes we need to back up half a step it's it's a lot of times you and i but today we have dave bennett with us oh yeah dave hi dave <laughs> and, and so dave is a um one of the user one of the users out at permies.com he posts a fair bit and uh and i understand that dave you've listened to all of the podcasts to date all of them to date <laughs> so you're pretty savvy to what we're all about and what we're doing. Awesome. And on top of that, now, uh, while I have the first edition of Gaia's Garden, uh, kind of old and tattered and whatnot, uh, I understand that both you and Jocelyn have the second edition. Yes. And that's what you're going to be reviewing. So there might be some differences between what we've what we've all read here. But, um, okay, that's covered. Good point, Jocelyn. Good point. There's three of us here. We're going to talk about this. Um, uh, so I thought that he did a, a great job of saying, here's where permaculture is. Here's where nature is left alone. Here's where somebody might be into all native plants and where they might be and what they might advocate. And then here's something that's a little bit more conventional, where you have a garden grown in rows or a field, you know, a field crop grown in rows or something like that. And so um, um, this this is where he really does this fantastic, awesome job of bringing in the entire discussion about natives. And um, it's been years, like I don't know, seven, eight years since I've read this book, and so it's it's uh, really great to come back to it. One of the things that he starts off that, that I, I noted when he started off is, is where he's, he's talking about ecological gardens, and it seems like rather than jumping into the word permaculture, it's kind of like this newish word. And so then he's got this this sidebar about what is permaculture. Does your guys' edition have the sidebar what is permaculture? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he he kind of seems to I don't know I I don't I don't remember seeing him dive into saying this is permaculture. He seems to describe what he likes, and it being permaculture is a little bit of a side note. Did you guys get that impression? Somewhat, though. Though throughout the chapter, he does a pretty good job of starting to incorporate and expose the reader to different permaculture principles. I think a lot of this is. What I get, from, I got from the first chapter as an overall picture was he's actually just laying the foundation for, for what permaculture actually is. And so he covers a lot of different areas of different styles of, of gardening. And, and the overall aspect of it, from, a, from an agricultural standpoint... Okay, I I you know early on, so I'm like looking at I've, I've marked up my books, which in the past I've never done, um, but I marked it up with the idea of trying to do a good job for this podcast, 
And uh, and so the first the first important note that I've got here is inside the part where it says what is permaculture, and he he has this little thing where it says uh, I'm going to read it here. Um, Bill Mollison, a charismatic and iconoclastic one-time forester, school teacher, trapper, and field naturalist. Uh, and so it is. I I just kind of thought, man. Bill's cooler than I thought. I, I thought that was really good. I, I I I didn't. There's these little bits that I never knew about Bill, and he's far more. I thought he was just like this stodgy professor kind of guy, and once in a while he goes out and pokes things around in a garden kind of thing, um, and then he travels the world and points at gardenish stuff. But but you know, with this, he, I I think Bill Mollison is far more interesting. And then Toby goes on to list, in the second edition, the permaculture principles. And he has he has his own version of them that he's drawn from different sources. So he does ten of the more regular principles, and then he does four more that are principles based on attitudes. But, but he doesn't really talk about that sidebar. You're right. Um, but if you are familiar with guilds and chop and drop mulching and some different things that are considered permaculture te- techniques. He starts talking about those in terms of an ecological garden throughout the chapter. Cool. Okay. <clears throat> uh, uh, you know, I thought there was 12 principles. I know we have three ethics. Um, and and but I is I thought there were twelve principles. I don't know why I thought that. Isn't that uh, maybe that's Holmgren's work? And but. I I think they all have their different ones. Um, I think a couple of these that were added in might have come from Larry Santoyo. Um, so we might have added in a couple attitudes from Larry. Okay. The the next note I have highlighted is um, it. it it's part of a section, Gardens That Really Work With Nature. Um, uh, oh, right. He was talking about uh, insects. A lot of people, like, they see insects out in the garden, and they race out there to go kill all those bugs and everything. Um, and uh, his response is, is, we need insects in the garden. Without them, our workload would be crippling, hand-pollinating every bloom, grinding fallen leaves into compost by hand. Um, I, I thought that was an excellent point uh, um, as he's... Uh, Trying to, to to talk about working with nature as opposed to like uh, most most examples of uh, gardening and horticulture and landscaping. I think I think the word landscaping is exactly the same as I am making nature my personal bitch. I have to agree with that. <laughs> so uh, and and I think a lot of forms of gardening are close to the landscaping kind of thing. And um, I don't know, every time I see uh, landscaping, I feel like I should take a picture and I should have this, make a video that's nothing but a collection of pictures of, here's how I've made nature my personal bitch. Um, But, okay, I'm moving along. I think Toby's making a lot of good points about working, when you work with nature, then life becomes a lot easier. Right. He talks about how it's less work. Um, Yeah. Under under the section of why is gardening so much work, I've got highlighted, uh, have you ever wondered why a forest or meadow looks perfect and stays nearly disease-free with no care at all, while a garden demands arduous hours of labor? This happens because most gardens ignore nature's rules. 
And then a little bit further down, tilling, for example, destroys weeds and pumps air to microbes that, metabolically supercharged, release a flood of nutrients for fast crop growth. These are great short-term boons to plant growers, but we now know that in the long term, tilling depletes fertility. Those revved up microbes will burn up all the nutrients, then die. Causes more disease and ruins the soil structure with compaction to hard pan and massive erosion as the result. So, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm reading off the chunks I highlighted. What can I say? Well, um, well, I was hoping Dave might jump in with that great example he had from. Well, um, I, I I was thinking about that. I was waiting for Paul to finish. You know reading that that section about about the the tilling thing and it's it's something that i learned when i was when i was really young i had a neighbor that that had one of those kind of gardens that he never tilled his his garden ever he would just pull back the grass cut back the grass around the plants that he planted open up the soil just enough to plant the seed and then keep the grass back long enough for the the plant to get up above the grass so it wasn't crowded out and then he just let it go back and he spent his all every year his he would he spent he was an old old man he was in his 80s when i was a youngster and he spent his every summer during the growing season sitting on his front porch drinking a nice tea and and then when he needed something to from his garden he would just go out and walk through his garden and pick what he needed and he rarely did anything except in the springtime when he planted his annuals but most of the stuff that he had were perennial edibles and he was he learned that from his father and he was a native american he was a first people of eastern woodlands and uh, he learned that style of gardening from his from his ancestors from his father specifically but uh it was i guess you could call it forest gardening in in a sense but uh i and it also when you look at it it, it was permaculture from the ancients how how they farmed and it it never dawned on me what I was learning when I was a youngster because, you know, I was a youngster just listening to these stories from this old man teaching me how to garden. And I went through all of that stuff about rows and weeding and stuff, and it never dawned on me that what he had set up was was the way it should, should have, you should set it up. I mean, it was orderly in that he had rows of, of berry bushes, various berry bushes, and he had rows of of things, but it was kind of a mishmash of of uh, things. It didn't look really orderly unless you really examined it closely. But uh, the thing that impressed me most was that while everybody else was out weeding their gardens, he was sitting on his porch watching them. <laughs> <laughs> now, didn't you say, uh, like, I think you wrote about this out at Permies, and there's a thread called... Uh, what did you call the thread where you wrote about this? A shaman's garden. A shaman's garden. And that's what he called it, right? Yeah, well, yes. that's what he was, essentially. He, his father was a medicine man, a Native American medicine man. And he, he called it a shaman's garden, and he was kind of almost religious about it. You had to walk the path in the correct direction. You know, I, 
I did it because one time when I walked through it backwards, he scolded me for it. Now, that was part of his belief system, but that's how he learned to plant things. And I suppose that if I could, my memory was clearer from 50 years ago or more, that the plants that he planted must have been complementary to one another. But a lot of that stuff was, was wild harvested uh, transplanted from forest into his yard now you also the the thing I remember that you mentioned inside your thread was that he had a lot of uh, annuals that would reseed themselves yeah. he would always leave some behind because you mentioned just a moment ago something about how he would plant his annuals well, but I got the impression that he pretty much didn't some of them he harvested a lot of, like for instance, his sunflowers. He always left a sunflower behind. He just left it there. And birds ate a lot of the seeds, but it always there was a patch of sunflowers that would came up in the one corner of his garden every year, and he never planted them. He never did anything. They self-seeded. And some of his bush beans uh, did the same thing. He left beans laying, sitting on the bushes, and when the bushes died back in the winter, the next year, the more beans came up. Well, I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, you well, know, I, I think that is that is that is spectacularly awesome, and I'm so glad that you've brought this information up and and shared it. I, I think this is just crazy important stuff. When, when, um, I, when I just said about an, planting annuals, for instance, he didn't let the corn self seed. He planted corn every year. Well, corn can't self seed. Corn's like yeah. I think corn is the only plant that cannot survive without human help it's it's like the the ultimate human plant human human uh plant hybrid kind of thing so i i've heard that it'll it can last like two or three years without human help like you know the, the corn cob will fall on the ground and some of those will germinate and but then it starts it's it's like somehow it gets spread apart far enough or i don't know what it is but it's like it, it cannot reproduce by itself without people planting the corn kernels. Well, the whole example of this shaman's garden, he had, you know, um, wild plants he brought in and planted in his yard. He had annuals that he sowed and some of them that self-sowed is is what Toby starts describing. He, he especially when he's describing a native garden versus um, an ecological garden and adding in what he calls exotics, you know. So most of the food we eat, he talks about as being European or Asian or other plants that are not native to this area. And so, and so if you have a totally native garden, he says, you, you can't live off of that. And, and you're not going to be replacing native habitat by just planting a couple trees in your backyard. Um, and so what you want is, or what an ecological garden that Toby is describing here or a permaculture garden is some natives, um, uh, but a lot of food plants, and then um, it's also a lot of wildlife habitat. So you're getting this mix, this really, really rich mix that, that's uh, synergistic. I think the Shaman's Garden is an excellent example of that, of what he's describing. 
Now you know why everybody loves Jocelyn so much in these podcasts, because she always brings us back on topic. <laughs> I try. Well, it works for me. <laughs> I try. <clears throat> so, yeah. <clears throat> All right. My next highlighted chunk I want to read. Okay. <clears throat> All right, here we go. Solid blocks of the same plant variety, though easy to seed and harvest, act as an all-you-can-eat sign to insects, pests, and diseases. Harmful bugs will stuff themselves on this unbroken field of abundant food as they make unimpeded hops from plant to plant and breed to plague proportions. So, of course, Toby's talking about how monocrop sucks. And I think what people don't always translate that to is their own gardens of having, you know, a big row of some annual. I don't think they always translate that to their little home garden. Right. Here's my row of tomatoes and here's my row of, in fact, um, I was, you know, we were, we mentioned in a podcast not long ago, about the Colorado potato beetle, therefore, you know, you've got a row of potatoes, you've got your field of potatoes or whatever it is. And, and yeah, they, they come down and they, they, they can wipe out that patch. Um, I, in, in reviewing, I've got all this video footage of Skeeter that I haven't put up yet. And, uh, he, he grows, he's got like this 0.85 acres of a garden that's like his, his large garden. And, and in it, there are kind of sort of some rows, but it's like, you know, when he grows potatoes, he grows potatoes in like the, the same variety of potatoes in like six different little patches mixed in with everything else. So, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's not just here's all the potatoes in one big gob. So if one spot gets hit by some sort of pest, then the other stuff is going going to um, probably, most likely, be untouched. All right. So then, oh, here's the one. I highlighted it mostly um, as a neener neener to um, Helen Atow, because I believe in one of the podcasts I did with her, I was trying to make this point, and she insisted that this was not the case. And so Toby says, plants are mostly water, plus some carbon from the air. And and so I was I felt I was attempting to make that point and Helen was trying to say n- not so and look here it is. <laughs> it, so at least Toby's on my side on this one. Uh-huh. Great. I'm on so. your side with that one too. <laughs> Good. <laughs> we'll build an army and take on Helen together. <laughs> All right. So, um and then uh, moving along, we haven't even gotten to the big part of, I haven't, I mean, uh, um, Jocelyn, you kind of went into it a little bit, uh, and the big part being the thing about the natives versus exotics kind of thing. Um, but I've got one last little bit before we get into the natives versus exotics. And this is from a section called Beyond, Way Beyond Natural Gardening. And so this little part I've got in here is... Uh, uh, but a yard full of only native plants, lacking any for human use, simply means that somewhere else, out of sight, there is a non-native containing farm and a factory forest with the environmental destruction they bring, providing for that native-loving suburbanites' needs, which I guess is kind of what you already touched on, isn't it? 
Right, right. I just, yeah. And I loved his example of what the lumber for a typical American house of 2,500 square feet, you know, that's, the lumber for that is from about three acres of forest. And then people think they're helping replace the natives by planting a couple trees in their yard. I thought that was a brilliant concept. <laughs> I, I like the point about, you know, uh, if if you're going to grow this purely native thing, and I, and I think that there's, I mean, there is a lot of this. As we try to move forward with permaculture saying, hey, let's look at this big monocrop of wheat over here. And rather than having a big monocrop of wheat, what if we took that same land and we grew wheat and we grew like, you know, 40 other things on that land? And the native people come in and say, no, no, everything you grow on that needs to be native or you can't talk about it. And, I, and I'm kind of thinking, you know, wow. Uh, and, and it's amazing how passionate they are. And in the meantime, uh, it's like, well, what do you what do you eat? And then typically they eat, you know, same thing everybody else eats, which is not native food. So where do they think it comes from? And, and so Toby's point was is that if they take their yard and they make their yard be this perfect, flawless example of natives then that means that now their food needs to be grown somewhere else. Whereas if they were to grow food and focus on growing food, then that would mean that there would need to be less farmland, less land used outside to grow the food to feed them. Right. It's a very good point. Very, very good point. I I wish I could take credit for it. (laughs) Then he moves on to define more terminology. So he's building this whole description of an ecological garden, and he moves on, you know, he's going way beyond natural gardening into this ecological model, and he's talking, and then he moves on to define the terms of natives versus exotics, and then we get, you know, when people talk about natives, you can't talk about natives without talking about invasive weeds. And so he, he starts talking about that and saying, you know, well, the way nature works is these invasives are really just opportunistic. And they're just moving in where we have disturbed or exposed the soil or created a vacuum. And so, yeah, these may be non-natives. But they're just opportunistic. We've we've created the conditions for them to take over. So he 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 builds this wonderful case for, you know, this is nature trying to fix something, and and it's using what it's got available. Yeah, like bare earth. That's where where those invade so-called invasives. That's that's what they they want. A lot, a lot of those so-called invasives don't like really rich soil. They don't do well in them. Right. They're the healers. They're, they're the land healers. They're coming in and, and mending things. So, um, uh, and so a lot of the times when we see a lot of these species, like, oh, no, my, my field out here is being overwhelmed by this weed. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, that field out there where you went and you plowed the hell out of it, drove your tractor over it so many times that, that you know, you plowed it and then compacted it. And uh, uh, then you planted it with just, you know, one thing which doesn't do well in your newly compacted soil so nature's coming in to say you know what i can fix that yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. let, me, let exactly. me help you with that i read an, 
I read an article back in the 70s in Mother Earth News, I think it was, re regarding dandelions as the best way to, to fix your soil because it mm. bring, that deep taproot brings up minerals from down deep in the earth. So I've been... I've been encouraging them ever since. Well, and and they uh, not only that, but they're gonna they're gonna take that compacted soil um, if that's what, what's going on in that spot. I mean, it seems like a few times I've seen like you know massive dandelions. Like, wow, that's a lot of dandelions. It's usually an example of a compacted soil, uh, and and it puts it drives all these tap roots down. Then when the dandelion dies, then there's all this rich. Soil left behind as this organic matter um, creates these downward channels into the soil. So um, I, I think it's a it's a great example of that. I think uh, uh, you know something that's a little bit like dandelion that's often confused with dandelion would be hawkweed. Yes. And and hawkweed does that too. Hawkweed is a is a, whenever I see hawkweed, I immediately think the soil the soil here must be very compacted. Um, and so it's a good thing the hawkweed's there. But of course hawkweed's allelopathic, so I don't I usually. Uh, prefer to uh, not have the hawkweed and can I get something else in there that could do the hawkweed's job that is not allelopathic I'm trying to discourage the hawkweed but um, so have we have we covered what he says what he was setting up in the first chapter he's really setting up looking at your gardening as working with nature instead of fighting nature all the time instead of you know, fighting what's happening. He's saying, understand what's happening and let's and encourage it. Actually, yeah. yeah, I yeah. I think we have covered it. I mean, um, uh, and and I and I like the shamanic garden aspect. I mean, it really kind of drives the point home, and that is that if you if you've done this right, you should get to the point where it takes far less work. And then, uh, then if you go out and um, try and do this in a more conventional gardening approach, and uh, and he addresses, he, he he makes a case for why this approach is probably optimally the best approach compared to the many approaches of other people, um, and I think I think he does a, a remarkably good job. We good? I think we're good. Time to move on to chapter two. All right, so we're all, we've read chapter two, and and now we're going to talk about chapter two. But <clears throat> as as we're sitting here getting ready to talk about chapter two, then uh, internet connectivity stuff is uh, rearing its ugly head and uh, making everybody sound funny. Uh, and so this is since this is the first time we've tried to do this kind of podcast with multiple people like this then uh, I think that uh, it's only reasonable that we're going to have some growing pains. I mean, already for the little bits we've already recorded, it seems like we're just plagued with technical difficulties. And uh, uh, we had, re in fact, for Chapter 1, we had to record that a second time because we lost the first time. Uh, and, and, and so what, what I've noticed so far is, is that uh, since both Jocelyn and Dave end up sounding like they're either talking from a barrel or, or they've been replaced by robots, uh, and and so I think we'll just, we'll just make the best of it this time, and maybe on the next chapter we'll have something better set up. So, <clears throat> moving right along. <laughs> so, uh, uh, having having read uh, chapter two. Uh, and, and I had all these opportunities to go through and make lots and lots of notes. Uh, I made precisely one note. And, and in my note, I, uh, I just circled one word, 
Um, and, and I'm sure that other people's analysis of this chapter is, is going to be richer. Uh, I mean, ov- overall, it kind of seemed like another chapter one. What did you guys think? It is. It, it's another introduction, but but I thought it was useful in that um, I think some of these principles will take repeating to get people to think this way. The normal gardener, the average American gardener. What my take on, on, on it, what I got out of it was, was after rereading it again last night, uh, is it actually it, it's. He's gently expanding on the, the basic principles that he that he presented in chapter one. Uh, I think using the Bullock Brothers is a it was a is a prime example of how he's working towards towards the end of, of you know towards what this is really about. That's what I got. Okay, I, I'm kind of thinking that uh, in Chapter 1, I think that a lot of his argument was directed towards people that are um, uh, big fans of conventional gardening or they're coming from a, a perspective of uh, you know uh, standard horticulture, whereas um, I, think, I think that this chapter seemed to be... Uh, um, appeal more to the people that are going to be um, heavy into biology and stuff like that, while at the same time, kind of, uh, uh, I, I mean, I think this is kind of like a shout out to his peers more than educational for um, the general reader, although it, it kind of ends up being for both. So it's, it's the next step up for your 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 more conventional reader and for your people that are uh um big time into uh um more more biological ecosystems uh and and uh, well anyway it's it's but yeah it is another chapter one i did like the i mean since i've been to the bullock brothers farm several times then i I like that example and of course the first time i read this i had not been to the bullock brothers and and so now reading it again it's kind of like a little more fun oh yeah i knew all that (laughs) right what was the one word you circled immature Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, each of the paragraphs were kind of, I don't know, fairly general. And it's and I'm kind of reading through it, kind of going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was no paragraph where we really stood out. Like, it's like, wow, that one really made an awesome point. Because in Chapter 1, I kind of felt like over and over again, it's like, oh, yeah, I, that one I got to share. Because it's like the way he's worded it is just so good. This time I kind of felt a little bit like... Uh, like uh-huh, 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 and nothing was really profound. Um, but but when I saw it, when it was Lord and Mature, it just made me think of like, uh, hey, you know what they ought to do is they ought to make a Bill Nye the Science Guy episode of this. But maybe maybe they already have, and I I think that they have. Um, but but of course it goes, you know, Bill, 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 not the science guy. And then they got you know the the kid coming out and saying, Hey Rupert, your ecosystem is immature. <laughs> no, it isn't. <laughs> sorry, that's that's what ro- rolled through my head, and and that's why I circled the word. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I, I kind of see your point though. It, it is very, very basic. Well, and, 
That's a huge part of it is understanding what is an immature ecosystem versus a not. And it's kind of like, wow, so much of what we try to do is immature. Whereas in the previous chapter, a lot of it was how do we make nature our bitch? And and the, the, this chapter, it's more like, um, uh, you know, why nature does what nature does. And if your ecosystem is immature, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring in a lot of other plants to try and heal it. Well, he has a table of, okay, showing the attributes of immature ecosystems versus mature ecosystems. And I thought it was a more in-depth description of, okay, if you have a shrub, bark or bare earth, another shrub, you know, a, a, a lot of, and then little annual flowers or vegetables dotted here and there. That's how most people landscape their gardens and their yards. And and he's describing how that's an immature ecosystem. And, and, I, and I think that was really important to go through for most gardeners because most gardeners you know, would not get this concept without him going into it. So he he talks about the niche succession and biodiversity and how, you know, nature's wants to build toward a forest. They want to build toward a mature ecosystem. And in most places that get rainfall, he says, that's a forest. That's what it wants to be. I thought that was brilliant. I thought it needed the repeat and the in-depth explanation because I... You know, most gardeners just visually, they still see that bare earth and the bark. That's true. It is a common desire for people to, it's like if, they, if you don't see plants coming out of soil, then that's bad. And it's really the opposite that's true. You need, you need to not be able to see the soil. That, that's a very good point. And it, it's kind of like, it's kind of what he said in the, generally in through, throughout the chapter is, is that you know we, we, we covered it pretty well in, in the first chapter but expand, like I said earlier expanded on it in this in that you know you take a bare piece of soil the first things that show up are the opportunistic quote unquote weeds uh, because that's what they like and how what what you just said, said about the bare soil and that you shouldn't be able to see it is that gardeners oftentimes go out and make bare dirt and start over every single year. Right. All right, we ready to go on to the next chapter? Yeah. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think so too. All right, to the next chapter. All right, so we got chapter three done, and uh, um, I don't know about you two, but uh, I, I don't know. For me, I've been doing this stuff for so long that when I, I – I'm sure the first time I read this, it was all dreamy, but this time – I, I had I found I had to force myself to read it because I what I was very tempted and about 20 times I I found myself trying to skip ahead. I, uh, were you guys skip trying to do that or? Not for I, me. I did that when when I first went out and like I said the other day that I I went out and bought a new copy because I can't find my original. I was I just was whacking through it real fast just kept skipping ahead oh I gotta say I gotta read more I gotta read more I did that same thing but I I 
pushed through this last night. Just okay, so I'm not the only one that felt like this chapter was not wanting to, uh, I don't know, that, that, that it's, it's not like, because like chapter one, it's it was kind of like, uh, oh, that is so good. That is so great. Oh, that, you know, that really, that's the point. We, I need to, I need to echo that point. And, and with this chapter, it's kind of like, uh, uh-huh, right, uh-huh. Okay, what, what comes in the next page? Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I I forced myself to read every word. I, I, you know, not not skip ahead, even though I, you know, my my uh, subconscious very much wanted me to skip ahead. Jocelyn, how about you? It's you know, permaculture is newer to me than it is to probably both of you guys, and and I keep trying to be the translator between the people that are brand new to permaculture concepts and permaculture uh, just because of some of the worlds I walk in. And Paul, you and I have talked about this before. And so it's new to me. And I just took the permaculture design course last year with Toby. And and this was a nice review for me. Plus, I keep looking for those ways that the people who are used to shrub, mulch, shrub or shrub, bare earth, you know, the, the immature ecological garden that was described in chapter two. I keep looking for people who think that's normal landscaping and how they're going to integrate some of these concepts. And and so to me, I thought this chapter was a good review of that. And, and I think Toby is staying really conscious of that in his writing because right in the middle of this chapter on design, um, he's, he reminds readers right in the middle, for a garden to be considered ecological, the new landscape should require few outside input, especially once it's mature, increase biodiversity, create rather than destroy wildlife and plant habitat, enhance air, water, and soil quality, and eventually result in less work instead of more for human occupants. And I think I think that's I mean that's normal for you, Paul, because you're always saying you know, don't make nature your bitch, you know? And, and but and but I think for most people that are new to permaculture, it's it's gonna take them a while for that to assimilate. And, it, and for me, it was a nice review of all the different permaculture pr- principles of zones, sex, sectors, needs and yields, um, and edge. I thought he, you know, went into great description of edge and increasing edge and um, a lot of those different elements. I, I thought that the edge stuff was good. Um, I, I would have liked to have seen the edge stuff go into a lot more. more and deep. and with his analysis of the edge stuff, I, I kind of felt it was a fairly urban analysis of of edge. Um, uh, so I, I mean, I would have liked to have seen edge that talked about things like um, like pH and stuff like that. Um, but. Yeah, I I think uh, I, I I think this is where it's so good to have uh, you, Jocelyn, um, in these podcasts because so much of this stuff it's like uh, I I do feel like I really struggle to to relate a lot of this 
to folks that are still in the um, the the lawn and landscaping mindset, and uh, whereas. Uh, you know, so I and, and and I think that's a big part of how it is that this chapter might be of really huge appeal to most people, and and yet I'm kind of anxious to skip past it. Right. Well, and he does say at the end that each, you know, he he skimmed he skims the surface of some very complex permaculture ideas like edge, like zones, like sectors, um, and 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 reducing flow, you know, or directing flow, capturing flow, and and he said each of those could take a whole chapter in and of itself, and and I was reminded of the exercises we did in class. It was really wonderful to play with all of these different concepts with other people in class and just have these brainstorming sessions and you still felt like even with a room full of 40 people you still felt like you were just scratching the surface of how complex these and deep these topics can go I I agree and and my philosophies I know that like with Dave Bainline and and I have a different approach to uh, permaculture design uh, his approach is is very map intensive and and mine is um, not I mean I, I I'm okay with a map I, I in fact I like using uh, a rough map um, but I I kind of and even if you have put together a map that says here's something that's possibly five years into the future a big part of the map is is like and in six months we will probably throw this map out entirely and go with something else and so my my design philosophies are deeply rooted in that it will evolve a lot and that you cannot know where you will be in fact I would even go so far as to say that I think it's wrong to do that, but I think that's getting into an area that's very complicated, um, uh, and, and I think it's probably a little overwhelming for most people. Um, part of it being is that you don't know what you're going to want a year from now. Um, and so when you make a plan that's five or 20 years into the future, you're kind of saying, and my future self from six months into the future to 19 years in the future is stupid. <laughs> and and I want to plan for that person um, before I know what that person knows. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm wandering off into a whole different topic, although I guess we are, the chapter three is designing the ecological garden. And, and I think that my design approach is more of a, there's things that we can do now to move towards permaculture. And then during the time that we're moving, we're going to learn more about this land and we're going to learn more about permaculture and we're going to learn more about what I want to do or what the landowner wants to do and thus change direction. I think I think people who enjoy the maps would probably see the maps as a living document more, you know, you have a base map with the hardscaping in place and the elements that don't change. And then you may map out what you think you want in 20 years, but then one year down the road, you might change what you want, you know. And, and people who like that visual guide, I could see them changing and updating what their ideas and plans are periodically. 
I think I think having a five year map or a twenty year map is great because a lot of times when you're sitting down to get something done, you're working with other people. And and then it's best that when other people go out and they they do a, a piece or a chunk or whatever, that it's like, oh, by the way, as you're going out and you're working on that chunk, here's here's the, the, the bigger picture. Here's the bigger plan. Um, however, I also think that, you know, the first thing to keep in mind with any map is, is like, and this is what's in our head today, and it could be different tomorrow. So, um, well, anyway. Yes. So we've talked over Dave. We probably haven't given him a word of space to get a word in edgewise. That, that's okay. I was just listening. I was thinking about what, what you were talking about, the, the map, the mapping approach, and my approach is, is kind of, it's even probably more loose loosely arranged or planned than even what you what you described Paul in that I kind of like the I'm more of a wild sort of approach thing I like if I'm going to make a map it's going to be really really general based on how the plants will that I that I'm planning on adding will work together in some sort of a flow that that you know if you have stuff that on one end or one side of, of a that works towards an edge and in, in a sense that you know acid the stuff that likes acidic soil is is separated from the alkaline stuff and it kind of but it flows together and when you look at it it looks kind of haphazard in a sense that well, gee, why isn't there, you know, like standard to standard conventional thinking? How come there's no rows, and why is this that way? And I kind of grew up hanging out in the woods, looking at how things worked, and that's where I got my my basis for this from. Even though back then, when I was hanging out in the woods, I didn't realize that that's what that I was going to be sitting here today discussing things that I learned when I was a kid. <laughs> but that's, I mean, I had, when I owned my house when I, when I was married, the, I, I took care of all the, the food-bearing things and, of course, the roses. I have a big thing about rose bushes. And, but my wife got angry with me about how I was setting up the garden because it wasn't in rows. I said, it's food. It's not, it's for easy, easy maintenance. It's not for, doesn't have to be in rows. And, and I'm trying to use our space, our limited space efficiently. Right. And and Toby explains that really well. He explains how the keyhole garden beds and, and, and you know, you can pack more into a space and the plants can get more light and uh, all the different benefits of, of not doing rows. So I thought he did pretty well explaining that. I, I, I think that the chapter in that respect makes a good bridge between something like square foot gardening and um, I, I'm going to say more permaculture-esque-ish planting, which is far more random and willy-nilly. Uh, I mean, he started. He showed hexagonal patterns, and he showed um, you know a, a variety of, of different approaches to squeeze more in. Um, which, you know, 
I don't think I don't. I, I mean, a lot of his uh, some of his drawings showed like, and then a plant goes here, and then a plant goes here, and a plant goes, and I could kind of see somebody out there with a ruler trying to figure out where they're going to put their next plant, and I just kind of feel like, yeah, that's that's. A, I suppose if you've got very limited space. That might be a way to do it. Um, but even if you're talking about your Zone 1 stuff, it's kind of like uh, I, I still think the willy-nilly approach, the, the very mixed approach, is is still better, whereas his drawings seem to suggest a very organized, very formal, very much like uh, I've decided that this plant will need a radius of uh, 11 inches, and so I'm going to sit here and map out that circle, and then I'm going to plant something next to it that requires requires four inches on the southern side, and it's kind of like, wow, I, I just don't really, I mean, I, I can see doing things where it's like you're going to be planting your stuff that only gets, you know, within a, a couple of feet big uh, on the southern edge of stuff that gets to be five to six feet tall, which is on the southern edge of, of full-size trees. But, you know, this 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 detail of saying, I'm going to put the seed right here with the idea that it's going to grow up and be this big, that doesn't seem like the way that that kind of thing uh, is normally done in, in the permaculture systems that maybe, maybe in the permaculture systems that I like best, I should say, rather than permaculture system as an absolute. Well, your whole mindset is based on larger spaces, and and Toby is writing this for home gardeners, you know, suburban or urban, uh, some rural, but it's, you know, he's talking about home scale. I, it's right in the title, a guide to home scale permaculture, and and most home lots, you know, are limited space. It's very different. It's very, it's much more managed than um, larger scale, which which is where your mindset is, I think, Paul. Josh, well, true, but even on a smaller scale, even, even in an urban lot that's going to be really small, I mean, I, I still like the idea of doing a mixed polyculture rather than like I'm going to, you know, and, and that it, it comes from a seed mix and that you still introduce as much edge, cattywampus land as possible as opposed to like, you know, growing things in very formal shapes and, and then planting things in very exact locations. That's exa exactly the point I was trying to make about when I when I owned my home when I was married my front yard was 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 a garden and it was kind of to use your term willy-nilly in that it was a mix of, of vegetables and wildflowers and it it was uh, kind of an odd-looking front lawn I mean all of my neighbors thought I was some sort of a weirdo because well maybe I am but <laughs> I kind of didn't like the idea of that they they knocked down all the trees and then they built the house in the back of this half acre lot and most of my front yard was going to, supposed to be grass like everybody else's but I said well geez look at all that space and I don't want to grow grass there so I planned I, I did I broadcast seed wildflower seeds everywhere and then after that stuff got growing I went out and figured out where I wanted to put my bush beans and stuff and I just planted stuff all over the yard but I did it in such a manner that it was going to be easy for me to, to harvest when it came time to harvest, and I wasn't going to have to go weeding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Well, 
Is that enough on chapter three? I've, I've got I've got one thing I want to point out, and and uh, that's so uh, um, the only nitpickery I could come up with in this chapter, really. I mean, other than the stuff I've already <laughs> gone on about, is that um, he shows he shows the keyhole stuff, which keyhole gardens are awesome. They are the best, uh, and. Um, the only the only thing I want to change in this chapter, um, you know, in case Toby ever listens to this and he comes out with a third edition, is that I'd I'd like to see. It's like a, he's got a picture where you go out the back of the house, and then there's a collection of of keyhole beds, and then. Um, uh, and and then there's like no exit. <laughs> you're you're confined, and I suppose that that could work out okay um, if your uh, um, backyard has that shape like that, and you can't you can't get out of your backyard. Um, but uh, uh, even still, I I think that it's important um, to because to to have. Um, to be able to pass all the way through to the keyhole beds. I mean, if people start designing their keyhole gardens in such a way that they're fully contained, or if they do the spiral garden that's on a large scale where you walk to this, you walk around in circles to get to the center. Um, I think that you're going to want to um, modify that later to create shortcuts to get to the center. Um, and in this design, I'd like to see um, ways to get outside of the keyhole system that he's got in place. Um, and I think another component is is that for any keyhole system that's being designed, um, and he, he mentions that once in a while it's okay to be able to step into it. I, I like to have the designs where you don't, and that you, you need to keep in mind that the reach of most folks is about two feet. And, and you know, what's better than keyhole is, is making hugelkultur, uh raised beds that are even even taller than what he's probably envisioning for this, which is probably maybe a foot or two ha- tall. I, I like my raised beds much, much taller and um, and also uh, full of wood. But it's it's the uh, the paths. The paths need to have more exits and more networks. It's it's just amazing how um, something that could be really, really close to the house ends up being your zone three just because the only path to get there is you have to wander way far away and then back to the house in order to get to it. I need to get some software so I can – I've been given a lot of more thought. I've been working on this ever since you had me posted on, at Permis about the shaman's garden, and I'm remembering more about how it was put put together as far as the design of the, the path through it. So I need to get some software for my Mac that I can draw this out and put it on the site so people can see how it was designed because it, I think – this morning especially it was oh wow that's right and it you know was one of those the light bulb went on and i said i need to draw this out for so people can see because it was really efficiently laid out for, for easy harvest and easy maintenance but it wasn't just a, an elongated m it was more complicated than that uh as far as access to plants and walking through it so uh, that that would be great, Dave. That would be really cool to see. I would very much like to see that. So, yeah, Dave, get on that. <laughs> well, I will. I'll have to go and, and look around and see what software I can get to put on this that will work on this Mac, and I can draw a picture of it. 
Awesome. I can't help but think that a lot of that knowledge has disappeared. And and so you might be one of the few sources left for that kind of knowledge. And and so you yeah, it's really I think it's really important that you get that information down. I will like, do my best, like even if I have to draw it out on a piece of paper and send it to you by snail mail. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you did that, all I would do is take um, my cell phone camera and take a picture of it, and then and then put that up. You know, so welcome. You know, uh, some people might have a scanner or something and make it do a real nice job. I just usually end up just taking a picture of that kind of thing, and that's how I get it yeah. up. Well, I'm I'm old fashioned. I don't even have a cell phone, so. Oh, my, I don't have a scanner. I have a printer, but I never got a scanner. So, uh, but I'm sure that there's that that there's software that I can I can download on my Mac. I've got unbelievable hard disk space, so I can just get it. I'm going to send you a, a link to a place that I found this morning that you may be interested in looking through. Over, it's way too huge to put on the site. It's over. It's almost 14 gigabytes. That's a lot. So. All right, send me a link. Okay. Thanks, guys. Chapter four is next. Mm-hmm.